This month is a continuation of last month's ghost stories. Late November ghost stories here on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. This episode is brought to you by The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV, a 2021 drama inspired by the true story of Marty and the therapist who turned his life around, then took it over. When he first meets Dr. Ike, Marty just wants to get better at boundaries. Over 30 years, he'll learn all about them and what happens when they get crossed. Check out The Shrink Next Door, only on Apple TV. Check us out on Facebook.com and check the show notes for the sponsors who help keep us on air and find out how you can help. And also check out Taza Chocolates Holiday Stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. Hey, guess what? Here's the show. Here we go. Recording by Rafe Ball. Lord Beedon's Motor by John Harris Burland. A hard man was Ralph Strang, 7th Earl of Beedon, 70 years of age on his last birthday, but still upright as a dart, with hair white as snow, but with the devilry of youth still sparkling in his keen, dark eyes. He was, indeed, able to follow the hounds with the best of us, and there were few men, even among the youngest and most hot-headed of our riders, who cared to follow him over all the jumps he put his horse at. When I first came to Upston Way as a doctor, I thought it strange that so good a sportsman should be so unpopular. As a rule, a man can do pretty well anything in a sporting county, so long as he rides straight to hounds. But before I had been in the place a month, I attended him after a fall in the hunting field, and I saw that a man like that would be unpopular even if he gave all his goods to the poor and lived the life of St. Francis of Assisi. Not that he was harsh or even unpleasant, but he had the knack of making one feel foolish and uncomfortable, and there was something in the expression of his eyes that made one unable to look him squarely in the face. His manners, indeed, were perfect, and he retained all the old-world courtliness which seems to have been permanently abandoned by this generation, but I could not help feeling that underneath all his politeness and even hospitality lay a solid substratum of contempt. It was doubtless this impression which had earned him his unpopularity, for I never heard a single one of his enemies lay anything definite to his charge, beyond the fact that his elder brother had died in a lunatic asylum, and that Lord Beedon was in some vague way held responsible for this unfortunate event. But it was not until Lord Beedon purchased a 12-horsepower Napier motor-car that the villagers really began to consider him possessed of a devil, and certainly his spirit of devilry seemed to have found a worthy plaything in that grey mass of snorting machinery, which went through the lanes like a whirlwind, enveloped in a cloud of dust, and scattering every living thing close back against the hedges as a steamer dashes the waves against the banks of a river. I had often heard people whisper that he bore a charmed life in the hunting field, and that another, and better man, would have been killed years ago, and he certainly carried the same spirit of dash and foolhardiness, and also the same good fortune, into a still more dangerous pursuit. It was the purchase of this car that brought me into closer contact with him. 
I had had some experience of motors, and he was sufficiently humble to take some instructions from me, and also to let me accompany him on several occasions. At first, I drove the car myself, and tried to inculcate a certain amount of caution by example, but after the third lesson, he knew as much about it as I did, and, resigning the steering gear into his hands, I took my place by his side with some misgivings. I must confess that he handled it splendidly. The man had a wonderful nerve, and when an inch to one side or the other would probably have meant death, his keen eye never made a mistake, and his hand on the wheel was as steady as a rock. This inspired confidence, and though the strain on my nerves was considerable, I found, after a time, a certain pleasurable excitement in these rides. And it was excitement, I can tell you. No twelve miles an hour for Lord Beden. No precautionary breaks downhill. No wide curves for corners. He rode, as he did to hounds, straight and fast. Sometimes we had six inches to spare, but never more, and often as not another half inch would have shot us both out of the car. We always seemed to come round a sharp corner on two wheels. It was certainly exhilarating but there was something about it I did not quite like. I don't think I was physically afraid, but I recalled certain stories about Lord Beden's mad exploits in the hunting field, and it almost seemed to me as though he might be purposely riding for a fall. Then all at once my invitations to ride with him ceased. I thought at first that I had offended him, but I could think of no possible cause of offence and, besides, his manner towards me had not changed in any way, and I dined with him more than once at Beden Hall, where he was as courteous and irritating as usual. However, he offered no explanation, and I certainly did not intend to ask for one. I watched him narrowly when we talked about the motor, but he made no mystery about his rides. I noticed, however, that he looked older and more careworn, and that his dark eyes burned now with an almost unnatural brilliancy. I met him two or three times on the road when I was going my rounds in the trap, and he appeared to be driving his machine more furiously and fearlessly than ever. I was almost glad that his invitations had ceased. Strangely enough, I always encountered him on the same road, one which led straight to Oxminster, a town about twenty miles away. One evening, however, late in August, while I was finishing my dinner in solitude, I heard a familiar hum and rattle along the road in the distance. In less than a minute I saw the flash of bright lamps through my open window and heard the jar of a brake. Then there was a ring at the bell, and Lord Beden was announced. "'Good evening, Scott,' he said, taking off his glasses. "'Lovely night, isn't it? Would you care to come for a ride?' He looked very pale, and was covered with dust from head to foot. "'A ride, Lord Beden,' I replied thoughtfully. "'Well, I hardly know what to say. Will you have some coffee and a cigar?' He nodded assent and sat down. I poured him out some coffee, and noticed that his hand shook as he raised the cup to his lips. But driving a motor-car at a rapid rate might easily produce this effect. Then I handed him a cigar— and lit one for myself. "'Rather late for a ride, isn't it?' I said, after a slight pause. "'Not a bit, not a bit,' he answered hastily. "'It is as bright as day, and the road's clear of traffic.' 
Come, it will do you good. We can finish our cigars in the car. Yes, I replied thoughtfully, or at any rate, the draft will finish them for us. Look here, Scott, he continued in a lower voice, leaning over the table and looking me straight in the eyes. I particularly want you to come. In fact, you must come to oblige me. I want you to see something which I have seen. I am a little doubtful of its actual existence. I looked at him sharply. His voice was cold and quiet, but his eyes were certainly a bit too bright. I should say that he was in a state of intense excitement, yet with all his nerves well under control. I laughed a little uneasily. Very well, Lord Beden, I replied, rising from my chair. I will come, but you will excuse me saying that you don't look well tonight. I think you are rather overdoing this motor business. It shakes the system up a good deal, you know. I am not well, Scott, he said, but you cannot cure me. I said no more and left the room to put on my glasses and an overcoat. We set off through the village at about ten miles an hour. It was a glorious night, and the moon shone clear in the sky, but I noticed a bank of heavy black clouds in the west, and thought it not unlikely that we should have a thunderstorm. The atmosphere had been suffocating all day, and it was only the motion of the car that created the cool and pleasant breeze which blew against our faces. When we came to the church, we turned sharp to the right onto the Oxminster Road. It ran in a perfectly straight white line for three miles. Then it began to wind and ascend the Oxbourne Hills, finally disappearing in the darkness of some woods which extend for nearly five miles over the summit in the direction of Oxminster. "'Where are we going to?' I asked, settling myself firmly in my seat. "'Oxminster,' he replied rather curtly. "'Please keep your eyes open and tell me if you see anything on the road.' As he spoke, he pulled the lever farther towards him, and the great machine shot forward with a sudden plunge which would have unseated me if I had not been prepared for something of the sort. We quickly gathered up speed. Hedges and trees went past us like a flash. The dust whirled up into the moonlight like a silver cloud, and before five minutes had elapsed, we were at the foot of the hills and were tearing up the slope at almost the same terrific pace. As we ascended, the foliage began to thicken and close in upon us on either side, then the moon disappeared, and only our powerful lamps illuminated the darkness ahead of us. The car was a magnificent hill-climber, but the gradient soon became so steep that the pace slackened down to about eight miles an hour. Lord Beden had not spoken a word since he told me where we were going to, but he had kept his eyes steadily fixed on the broad circle of light in front of the car. I began to find the silence and darkness oppressive, and, to say the truth, was not quite comfortable in my own mind about my companion's sanity. I took off my glasses and tried to pierce the darkness on either side. The moon filtered through the trees and made strange shadows in the depths of the woods, but there was nothing else to be seen, and ahead of us there was only a white streak of road disappearing into blackness. Then suddenly my companion let go of the steering gear with one hand and clutched me by the arm. Listen, Scott, he cried. Do you hear it? I listened attentively, and at first heard nothing but the throb of the motor and a faint rustling among the trees as a slight breeze began to stir through the wood. Then I noticed that the beat of the piston was not quite the same as usual. It sounded jerky and irregular, 
faint and loud alternately, and I had an idea that it had considerably quickened in speed. "'I hear nothing, Lord Beden,' I replied, "'except that the engine sounds a little erratic. It ought not to make such a fuss over this hill.' "'If you listen more carefully,' he said, "'you will understand. That sound is the beat of two pistons, and one of them is some way off.' I listened again. He was right. There was certainly another engine throbbing in the distance. "'I cannot see any lights,' I answered, looking first in front of us and then into the darkness behind. "'But it's another motor, I suppose. It does not appear to me to be anything out of the way.' He did not reply, but replaced his hand on the steering gear and peered anxiously ahead. I began to feel a bit worried about him. It was strange that he should get so excited about the presence of another motor-car in the neighbourhood. I was not reassured either when, in rearranging the rug about my legs, I touched something hard in his pocket. I passed my fingers lightly over it, and had no doubt whatever that it was a revolver. I began to be sorry I had come. A revolver is not a necessary tool for the proper running of a motor-car. We were nearly at the top of the hill now, and still in the shadow of the trees. The road here runs for more than a mile along the summit before it begins to descend, and halfway along the level another road crosses it at right angles, leading one way down a steep slope to Little Stanway, and the other along the top of the Oxbourne Hills to Kelston and Rutherton, two small villages some miles away on the edge of the moors. We had scarcely reached the level when a few heavy drops of rain began to fall, and, looking up, I saw that the moon was no longer visible through the branches overhead. A minute later there was a low roll of thunder in the distance, and for an instant the scenery ahead of us flashed bright and faded into darkness. I turned up the collar of my coat. The car was now moving almost at full speed, but to my surprise, before we had gone a quarter of a mile... Lord Beden slowed it down, and finally brought it to a full stop with the brake. Then he appeared to be listening attentively for something, but the rising wind and pouring rain had begun to make an incessant noise among the trees, and the thunder had become more loud and continuous. I strained my sense of hearing to the utmost, but I could hear nothing beyond the sounds of the elements. "'What is the matter?' I queried impatiently. "'Are we going to stop here?' "'Yes,' he replied curtly. "'That is to say, if you have no objection. "'There is a certain amount of shelter.' "'I drew a cigar from my pocket and, after several attempts, managed to light it. "'To say the truth, I was in hopes that we should go no farther. "'The downward descent, three-quarters of a mile ahead of us, was about one in ten, "'and I did not feel much inclined to let my companion take me down a hill of that sort. "'Then, for a few seconds,' The rustling of the wind and pattering of the rain ceased among the trees, and once more I could distinctly hear the thud, thud, thud of an engine. It might have been a motor-car, but it certainly sounded to me more like the noise a traction engine would make. As we listened, the sound came nearer and nearer, and appeared to be on our left, still some distance down the hill. Then the storm broke out again with fresh fury, and we could hear nothing else. Lord Beden pulled the lever towards him, and we ran slowly forward until we were within thirty yards of the crossroads, 
when he again brought the machine to a standstill. The noise had become much louder now, and was even audible above the roar of the wind and rain. It certainly came from somewhere on our left. I looked down through the trees and thought I saw a faint red glow some way down the hill. Lord Beedon saw it too and pointed to it with a trembling hand. "'Looks like a fire in the wood,' I said carelessly. I did not very much care what it was. "'Don't be a fool!' he replied sharply. "'Can't you see it's moving?' Yes, he was right. It was certainly moving, and in a few seconds it was hidden by a thicker mass of foliage. I did not, however, see anything very noticeable about it. It was evidently coming up the road to our left, and was probably a belated traction engine returning home from the reaping. I was more than ever convinced of my companion's insanity, and wished that I was safe at home. I had half a mind to get off the car and walk, but he had by now managed to infect me with some of his own fear and excitement, and I did not quite fancy being left with no swifter mode of progression than my feet. The thumping sound came nearer and nearer, and, as we heard it more distinctly, was even more suggestive of a traction engine. Then I saw a red light through the trees, like the glow of a furnace, and not more than fifty yards away from us. My companion laid his left hand on the lever and stared intently at the corner. Then a rather peculiar thing happened. Whatever it was that had been lumbering slowly up the hill like a gigantic snail suddenly shot across the road in front of us like a streak of smoke and flame, and through the trees to our right I could see the red glow spinning up the road to Kelston at over thirty miles an hour. Almost simultaneously, Lord Beedon pulled down the lever and I instinctively clutched the seat with both hands. We shot forward, took the corner with about an inch to spare between us and the ditch and dashed off along the road in hot pursuit. But the red glow had got at least a quarter of a mile start and I could not see what it proceeded from. A flash of lightning, however, showed a dark mass flying before us in a cloud of smoke. It looked something like a large wagon with a chimney sticking out of it and sparks streamed out of the back of it until they looked like the tail of a comet. "'What the deuce is it?' I said. "'You'll see when we come up to it,' the Earl answered between his teeth. "'We shall go faster in a few minutes.' We were, however, going quite fast enough for me, and though I have ridden on many motors since, and occasionally at a greater speed, I shall never forget that ride along the Kelston Road. The powerful machine beneath us trembled as though it were going to fall to pieces. The rain lashed our faces like the thongs of a whip. The thunder almost deafened us. The lightning first blinded us with its flashes and then left us in more confusing darkness. And, to crown all, a dense volume of smoke poured from the machine in front and hid the light of our own lamps. It would be hard to imagine worse conditions for a motor ride and a man who could keep a steady hand on the steering gear under circumstances like these was a man indeed. I should not have cared to try it, even in the daytime, but Lord Beedon's luck was with him still, and we moved as though guided by some unseen hand. "'You will find a small lever by your side, Scott,' he said after a long pause. "'Pull it towards you until it gives a click. It is an invention of my own.' 
I found the handle and, following out his instructions, saw the arc of light from our lamps shoot another fifty yards ahead, leaving the ground immediately in front of the car in darkness. We had gained considerably. The light just impinged on the streaming tail of sparks. At last, my companion muttered, he has always had half a mile start before, and the oil has given out before I could catch him. But he cannot escape us now. What is it, Lord Beden? I'm glad you see it, he replied. I thought before tonight that it was a fancy of my brain. Of course I see it, I said sharply. I'm not blind. But what is it? He did not answer, but a flash of lightning showed me his face, and I did not repeat the question. Mile after mile we spun along the lonely country road, but never gaining another inch. We dashed through Kelston like a streak of light. It was fortunate that all the inhabitants were in bed. Then we shot out onto a road leading across the open moor, which stretches from here to the sea, twenty miles away. And I remembered that eight miles from Kelston there was a deep descent into the valley of the store, and it was scarcely possible that we could escape destruction. I quickly made up my mind to overpower Lord Beden and gain control of the machine. Then we suddenly began to sweep down a long and gentle gradient, and second after second our speed increased until the arc of light shone on the machine ahead of us, and I could see what manner of thing it was that we pursued. It was, I suppose, a kind of motor-car, but unlike anything I had ever seen before, and bearing no more resemblance to a modern machine than a bone-shaker of twenty years ago does to the modern freewheel. It appeared to be built of iron, and was painted a dead black. In the forepart of the structure a five-foot flywheel spun round at a terrific speed, and various bars and beams moved rapidly backwards and forwards. The chimney was quite ten feet in height, and poured out a dense volume of smoke. On a small platform behind, railed in by a stout iron rail, stood a tall man with his back to us. His dark hair, which must have reached nearly to his shoulders, streamed behind him in the wind. In each hand he grasped a huge lever, and he was apparently gazing steadily into the darkness before him, though it seemed to me that he might just as well have shut his eyes, for the machine had no lamps, and the only light in the whole concern streamed out from the half-open furnace door. Then, to my amazement, I saw the man take his hands off the levers and coolly proceed to shovel coal into the roaring fire. I held my breath, expecting to see the flying mass of iron shoot off the side of the road and turn head over heels down the sloping grass, but nothing happened. The machine apparently required no guidance, and proceeded on its way as smoothly and swiftly as before. I took hold of my companion's arm and called his attention to this somewhat strange circumstance. He only laughed. "'Look at the smoke!' he cried. "'That is rather strange, too!' I looked up and saw it pouring over our heads in a long, straight cloud, but I did not notice anything odd about it, and I said so. "'Can you smell it?' he continued. I sniffed, and noticed for the first time that there had been no smell of smoke at all, though in the earlier part of the journey we had been half-blinded with it. 
I began to feel uncomfortable. There was certainly something unusual about the machine in front of us, and I came to the conclusion that we had had about enough of this kind of sport. "'I think we will go back, Lord Beden,' I remarked pleasantly, moving one hand towards the lever. "'You will go back to perdition, Scott,' he answered quietly. "'If you meddle with me, we shall be smashed to pieces.' We are going forty miles an hour, and if you distract my attention for a single instant, I won't answer for the consequences. I felt the truth of what he said, and put my hand ostentatiously in my pocket. It was quite evident that I couldn't interfere with him, and equally evident that if we went on as we were going now, we should be dashed to pieces. My only hope was that we should speedily accomplish whatever mad purpose Lord Beden had in his mind— although by now I began to think that he had no other object than suicide. The valley of the store was only two miles off. But we had been gaining inch by inch down the slope, and were now not more than thirty yards from the machine in front of us. Showers of sparks whirled into our faces, and I kept one arm before my eyes. I soon found, however, that, for some reason or other, the sparks did not burn my skin— and I was able to resume a more comfortable position and study the occupant of the car. His figure somehow seemed strangely familiar to me, and I tried hard to recollect where I had seen those square shoulders and long, lean limbs before. I wished I could see the man's face, for I was quite certain that I should recognise it. But he never looked back, and appeared to be absolutely unconscious of our presence so close behind him. Nearer we crept, and still nearer, until our front wheels were not more than ten feet from the platform. The glow of the furnace bathed my companion's face in crimson light, and the figure of the man in front of us stood out like a black demon toiling at the eternal fires. "'Be careful, Lord Beden!' I cried. "'We shall be into it!' He turned to me with a smile of triumph, and I thought I saw the light of madness in his eyes. "'Do you know what I'm going to do?' he said in a low voice, putting his lips close to my ear. "'I'm going to break it to bits. "'We have a little speed in hand yet, and when we get to the slope of the store valley, "'I shall break the cursed thing to bits.' "'For heaven's sake!' I cried. "'Put the brake on, Lord Beden. Are you mad?' "'And I gripped him by the arm.' He shook my hand off, and I clung to my seat with every muscle of my body strained to the utmost, for as I spoke there was a flash of lightning, and I saw the road dipping, 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 and far below the gleam of water among dark trees, and on the height above a large building with many spires and towers. I idly called to mind that it was the Rockshire County Asylum. Our speed quickened horribly, and the car began to sway from side to side. I saw my companion pull the lever an inch nearer to him and grip the steering wheel with both hands. Then suddenly the road seemed to fall away beneath us. We sprang off the ground and dropped downward and forward like a stone flung from a precipice. We were going to smash clean through the machine in front of us. For five seconds I held my breath, only awaiting the awful crash of splintering wood and iron and the shock that would fling us fifty feet from our seats. But we only touched the ground with a sickening thud an inch behind the other machine, and then a wonderful thing happened. 
we began to slowly pierce the rail and platform in front of us until the man seemed to be almost touching our feet, and at last I saw his face. A wild, dark face with madness in the eyes, and the face of Lord Beden, as I had seen a portrait of him in Beden Hall taken thirty years ago. My companion rose on his seat and grappled with his own likeness, but he seemed to be only clutching the air, and neither car nor occupant appeared to have any tangible substance. Steadily and silently, we bored our way clean through the machine, inch by inch, foot by foot, through the blazing furnace, through the framework of the boiler, through bolt and bar and stanchion, through whirring flywheel and pulsing shaft and piston, until there was nothing beyond us but the dip of the white road, and, looking back, I saw the whole dark mass running behind our back wheels. Lord Beden was still standing and tearing at the air with his fingers. Our car was running without guidance, and I sprang to the steering wheel and reversed the lever. But it was too late. We struck something at the side of the road, and the whole machine made a leap from the ground. There was a rush of air, an awful shock and crash, and then... darkness. A week afterwards, in the hospital, they told me Lord Beden was dead. He had fallen on a large piece of scrap iron by the roadside, and nearly every bone in his body had been broken. I myself had had a miraculous escape by falling into a thick clump of gorse and had gotten off with a broken arm and dislocated collarbone, but I was not able to get about for two months. I said nothing of what had happened, and the accident required but little explanation. Motorcar accidents are common enough, especially on slopes like that of the Store Valley. When I was able to get about, however, I visited the scene of the disaster. A friend of mine, one of the doctors at the County Lunatic Asylum, called for me and drove me over to the place. The smash had occurred nearly halfway down the hillside, close to a ruined shed. The ground was covered with gorse and bracken, but here and there huge pieces of rusty iron were scattered about. Some of them were sharp and brown and ugly, but many were overgrown with creeping convolvulus. They looked as if they had once been parts of some great machine. A curious coincidence, said my companion, as we drove away from the place. What do you mean? I have been told, he continued, that thirty years ago this old shed was used by the late Earl's elder brother. He was a mechanical genius, and they say that his efforts to work out some particular invention in a practical form drove him off his head. He was allowed to have this place as a workshop, and, under the supervision of two keepers, worked on his invention till the day of his death. It was thought that, perhaps, he would recover his reason if ever he accomplished the task. But in some mysterious way his plans were stolen from him no fewer than three times, and after the third time the poor fellow lost heart and destroyed himself. I have heard it whispered by one of my colleagues up yonder that the late Earl was not altogether ignorant of these thefts, but this is probably only gossip. All the fragments of iron you saw lying about were parts of the machine. Heaven knows what it was, 
I did not venture any suggestion on this point, but I think I could have done so. End of Lord Beedon's Motor Recording by Rafe Ball Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Andrew Gantz. The Parrot by Guy de Maupassant. One. Everybody in Ficomp knew Mother Patin's story. She had certainly been unfortunate with her husband, for in his lifetime he used to beat her, just as wheat is threshed in the barn. He was a master of a fishing bark and had married her formerly because she was pretty, although poor. Patin was a good sailor, but brutal. He used to frequent Father Aubin's inn, where he would usually drink four or five glasses of brandy, on lucky days eight or ten glasses and even more according to his mood, the brandy was served to the customers by Father Aubin's daughter, a pleasing brunette who attracted people to the house only by her pretty face, for nothing had ever been gossiped about her. Patin, when he entered the inn, would be satisfied to look at her and to compliment her politely and respectfully. After he had had his first glass of brandy, he would already find her much nicer. At the second, he would wink. At the third, he would say, If you were only willing, Mademoiselle Desiree, without ever finishing his sentence, at the fourth, he would try to hold her back by her skirt in order to kiss her. And when he went as high as ten, it was Father Aubin who brought him the remaining drinks. The old innkeeper, who knew all the tricks of the trade, made Desiree walk about between the tables in order to increase the consumption of drinks. And Desiree, who was a worthy daughter of Father Aubin, flitted around among the benches and joked with them, her lips smiling and her eyes sparkling. Patin got so well accustomed to Desiree's face that he thought of it even while at sea, when throwing out his nets, in storms or in calms, on moonlit or dark evenings. He thought of her while holding the tiller in the stern of his boat, while his four companions were slumbering with their heads on their arms. He always saw her, smiling, pouring out the yellow brandy with a peculiar shoulder movement, and then exclaiming as she turned away, "'There, now are you satisfied?' He saw her so much in his mind's eye that he was overcome by an irresistible desire to marry her, and, not being able to hold out any longer, he asked for her hand. He was rich, owned his own vessel, his nets, and a little house at the foot of the hill on the retinue, whereas Father Aubin had nothing. The marriage was therefore eagerly agreed upon, and the wedding took place as soon as possible, as both parties were desirous for the affair to be concluded as early as convenient. Three days after the wedding, Patin could no longer understand how he had ever imagined Desiree to be different from other women. What a fool he had been to encumber himself with a penniless creature who had undoubtedly inveigled him with some drug which she had put in his brandy. He would curse all day long, 
break his pipe with his teeth and maul his crew. After he had sworn by every known term at everything that came his way, he would rid himself of his remaining anger on the fish and lobsters which he pulled from the nets and threw into the baskets amid oaths and foul language. When he returned home, he would find his wife, Father Obas's daughter, within reach of his mouth and hand, and it was not long before he treated her like the lowest creature in the world. As she listened calmly, accustomed to paternal violence, he grew exasperated at her quiet, and one evening he beat her. Then life at his home became unbearable. For ten years, the principal topic of conversation on the retinue was about the beatings that Patin gave his wife and his manner of cursing at her for the least thing. He could, indeed, curse with a richness of vocabulary and a roundness of tone unequaled by other men in Facamp. As soon as his ship was sighted at the entrance of the harbor returning from the fishing expedition, every one awaited the first volley he would hurl from the bridge as soon as he perceived his wife's white cap. Standing at the stern, he would steer, his eye fixed on the bows and on the sail, and, notwithstanding the difficulty of the narrow passage and the height of the turbulent waves, he would search among the watching women and try to recognize his wife, Father Obas's daughter, the wretch. Then, as soon as he saw her, notwithstanding the noise of the wind and the waves, he would let loose upon her with such power and volubility that everyone would laugh, although they pitied her greatly. When he arrived at the dock, he would relieve his mind while unloading the fish in such an expressive manner that he attracted around him all the loafers of the neighborhood. The words left his mouth sometimes like shots from a cannon, short and terrible, sometimes like peals of thunder which roll and rumble for five minutes. Such a hurricane of oaths that he seemed to have in his lungs one of the storms of the Eternal Father. When he left his ship and found himself face to face with her, surrounded by all the gossips of the neighborhood, he would bring up a new cargo of insults and bring her back to their dwelling, she in front, he behind, she weeping, he yelling at her. At last, when alone with her behind closed doors, he would thrash her on the slightest pretext. The least thing was sufficient to make him raise his hand, and when he had once begun he did not stop, but he would throw into her face the true motive for his anger. At each blow he would roar, There, you beggar! There, you wretch! There, you pauper! What a bright thing I did when I rinsed my mouth with your rascal of a father's apology for brandy! The poor woman lived in continual fear, in a ceaseless trembling of body and soul, in everlasting expectation of outrageous thrashings. This lasted ten years. She was so timorous that she would grow pale whenever she spoke to anyone, and she thought of nothing but the blows with which she was threatened, and she became thinner, more yellow and drier than a smoked fish. 2. One night, when her husband was at sea, she was suddenly awakened by the wild roaring of the wind. She sat up in her bed, trembling, but as she heard nothing more, she lay down again. Almost immediately there was a roar in the chimney which shook the entire house. It seemed to cross the heavens like a pack of furious animals, snorting and roaring. Then she arose and rushed to the harbor. Other women were arriving from all sides, carrying lanterns. The men were also gathering, and all were watching the foaming crests of the breaking wave. The storm lasted fifteen hours. Eleven sailors never returned. Patin was among them. In the neighborhood of Dieppe, the wreck of his bark, the Jeune Amélie, was found. The bodies of his sailors were found near Saint-Valery, but his body was never recovered. 
As his vessel seemed to have been cut in two, his wife expected and feared his return for a long time, for if there had been a collision, he alone might have been picked up and carried afar off. Little by little, she grew accustomed to the thought that she was rid of him, although she would start every time that a neighbor, a beggar, or a peddler would enter suddenly. One afternoon, about four years after the disappearance of her husband, while she was walking along the Rue aux Juifs, she stopped before the house of an old sea captain, who had recently died and whose furniture was for sale. Just at that moment, a parrot was at auction. He had green feathers and a blue head and was watching everybody with a displeased look. Three francs, cried the auctioneer. A bird that can talk like a lawyer. Three francs. A friend of the Patin woman nudged her and said, You ought to buy that, you who are rich. It would be good company for you. That bird is worth more than thirty francs. Anyhow, you can always sell it for twenty or twenty-five. Patin's widow added fifty centimes, and the bird was given her in a little cage which she carried away. She took it home, and, as she was opening the wire door in order to give it something to drink, he bit her finger and drew blood. "'Oh, how naughty he is,' she said. Nevertheless, she gave it some hemp seed and corn and watched it pruning its feathers as it glanced warily at its new home and its new mistress. On the following morning, just as day was breaking, the Patin woman distinctly heard a loud, deep, roaring voice calling, "'Are you going to get up, Carrion?' Her fear was so great that she hid her head under the sheets, for when Patin was with her as soon as he would open his eyes, he would shout those well-known words into her ears. Trembling, rolled into a ball, her back prepared for the thrashing which she already expected, her face buried in the pillows, she murmured, "'Good Lord, he is here, good Lord, he is here, good Lord, he has come back.' Minutes passed. No noise disturbed the quiet room. Then, trembling, she stuck her head out of the bed, sure that he was there, watching, ready to beat her. Except for a ray of sun shining through the window, she saw nothing, and she said to herself, He must be hidden. She waited a long time, and then, gaining courage, she said to herself, I must have dreamed it, seeing there is nobody here. A little reassured, she closed her eyes, when from quite near a furious voice, the thunderous voice of the drowned man, could be heard crying, Say, when in the name of all that's holy are you going to get up, you b? She jumped out of bed, moved by obedience, by the passive obedience of a woman accustomed to blows and who still remembers and always will remember that voice. She said, Here I am, Patin, what do you want? But Patin did not answer. Then, at a complete loss, she looked around her, then in the chimney and under the bed, and finally sank into a chair, wild with anxiety, convinced that Patin's soul alone was there, near her, and that he had returned in order to torture her. Suddenly she remembered the loft, in order to reach which one had to take a ladder. Surely he must have hidden there in order to surprise her. He must have been held by savages on some distant shore, unable to escape until now, and he had returned worse than ever. There was no doubting the quality of that voice. She raised her head and asked, "'Are you up there, Patin?' Patin did not answer. Then, with a terrible fear which made her heart tremble, she climbed the ladder, opened the skylight, looked, saw nothing, entered, looked about, and found nothing. Sitting on some straw, she began to cry, but while she was weeping, overcome by a poignant and supernatural terror, she heard Patin talking in the room below. He seemed less angry, and he was saying, "'Nasty weather, fierce wind, nasty weather, I haven't eaten, damn it!' She cried through the ceiling, "'Here I am, Patin, I am getting your meal ready, don't get angry!' 
She ran down again. There was no one in the room. She felt herself growing weak as if death were touching her, and she tried to run and get help from the neighbors when a voice near her cried out, I haven't had my breakfast, by g and the parrot in his cage watched her with his round, knowing, wicked eye. She too looked at him wildly, murmuring, Ah, so it's you. He shook his head and continued, Just you wait, I'll teach you how to loaf. What happened within her? She felt she understood that it was he, the dead man, who had come back, who had disguised himself in the feathers of this bird in order to continue to torment her that he would curse as formerly all day long and bite her and swear at her in order to attract the neighbors and make them laugh. Then she rushed for the cage and seized the bird, which scratched and tore her flesh with its claws and beak. But she held it with all her strength between her hands. She threw it on the ground and rolled over it with the frenzy of one possessed. She crushed it and finally made of it nothing but a little green flabby lump which no longer moved or spoke. Then she wrapped it in a cloth, as in a shroud, and she went out in her nightgown, barefoot. She crossed the dock, against which the choppy waves of the sea were beating, and she shook the cloth and let drop this little dead thing which looked like so much grass. Then she returned, threw herself on her knees before the empty cage, and, overcome by what she had done, kneeled and prayed for forgiveness, as if she had committed some heinous crime." End of The Parrot Hey everyone, it's me, Amy, just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the show, just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers, heck, we've got some show shirts in there.